I'll tell you what, though. Mm-hmm. Out in the shops the other day, and of course, still wearing a mask because I think it's the right thing to do, but very, very hot in this hot weather. And something occurred to me. Do you remember the plague doctors back in the day, you know, the 16th, 17th century? You had plague doctors and they had these long beaks. Oh, yes. They used to go out. Yeah. yeah. And they used to actually, apparently, I read up on it, they used to put herbs in them so that things would smell a bit better. And there was just a little hole at the end of the beak, you know, for fresh air. And I was thinking that would be much better going around the supermarket. And it would also keep people at the distance because if you both had your beaks on, you couldn't go too close to anyone. So it would have that double-edged benefit, I think, of you'd get nice smells. There might be a little bit more air coming in there, a bit more air to breathe that it's not type against your nose <laughs> and it would keep people away and i think that is the way forward so if anyone out there is thinking of making more masks i think you should look up the history books and find out what a plague doctor used to wear or oh, the goggles on as well they say that covid can be transferred by the eyes so i think the goggles would be quite good as part of the mask actually linda i mean that is a very very intuitive thing to think about but what about mm-hmm. why they just dress in big dallas shoulder pads big ones so that mm-hmm. every time you go past somebody you actually are going to keep your distance i mean you don't have to wear such a hideous mask in front of you you could wear the dallas big ta- shoulders tailor made <laughs> they've been doing it for hundreds of years it couldn't be better i mean that's what they that's what they came up with a long time ago that must work that would work much better than shoulder pads keep covid away wouldn't it <laughs> i a just think you'd mask. rather do it i think that that's the theater in you linda you would like to have <laughs> i would big... like to <laughs> But I wouldn't want to be in my own doing it because I think people might look. The thing is, Linda, I think you will be on your own there. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't want to. I think it's a good idea and I think it would work. <laughs> You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. Don't you admire these women who build a belief system and then really go for it and really, you know, go out there and spend a lot of their lives trying to change things. They see something wrong and they want to change it. I really admire people like that. You're right. Beverly Lawrence Beach, our guest on this programme, is standing up for what she believes in. You're absolutely right. And she is researching it. She's doing all the work. So this is what's quite interesting about people that have a mission is they do do their research. Absolutely. And she has focused on um, on childbirth, actually, and improving childbirth. She's a writer, researcher and activist. And she had a bit of a bad experience when she gave birth to her first child, And rather than just kind of getting on with it, like most of us do, you know, just kind of forgetting all about it, she stuck with it and she has made things a lot better, made a lot of changes. So very interesting chat with uh, Beverly Lawrence Beach. Absolutely. And of course, our other guest, Jo Mosley, is just going to be a very interesting person to be able to chat Mm. with her today. I really love this. She calls herself a joy encourager. And she also says that she's a beach cleaner and a midlife adventurer. Now, are we midlife adventurers, Linda? I don't feel that we're midlife adventurer enough, <laughs> actually. Stand up paddleboard or coast to coast, no less. Yeah. Brilliant stuff.
Women Making Waves. It's not every day Linda and I get to meet a woman who describes herself as a joy encourager, a beach cleaner, a midlife adventurer as well. Well, this is very, very true. Our guest today, Joe Mosley, is also a writer, a public speaker, an award-winning filmmaker and a fundraiser. Now, we're going to delve into Joe's incredible life a bit today and really take on board how Joe moves and grooves. And in 2019, Joe was the first woman to stand up paddleboard coast to coast, taking in a whopping 162 miles from Liverpool to Gaul, picking up litter, raising money for charity, huge adventures. Welcome, Joe. To women oh, making waves. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I love the title, wake, making waves. That's brilliant. <laughs> yes, this is perfect. <laughs> Although you probably don't want too many waves when you're standing. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> That's true. Now, now we're guessing that you don't wait for things to happen. You make things happen. Now, was there a particular moment in your life that sparked the life you live right now? Yeah, and. It's funny because when people say, you know, when I hear that introduction, I think, gosh, is that me? Because <laughs> um, actually, I don't consider myself any of those things except the joy encourager, adventure and beach cleaner. And yeah, there was a point that was a really low point, which actually sparked the life I lead now. And that was back in 2013, when I burst into tears in the supermarket um, in Tesco's. I was with my sons in the biscuit aisle and I just dropped my bags leant against the chocolate, looked at the biscuits, for some reason focused on the chocolate hobnobs. They're not my favourite biscuit, but for some reason focused on them. And I just thought, I can't do this anymore. And I just burst into tears and just sobbed and said to my sons, I can't do this. I just can't do this anymore. And I'll be honest, Tesco's is not the only supermarket I've cried in. All supermarkets are available for my tears. So that was a really low point and that then began a series of very small steps to living a life which I lead now and I continue to keep putting those steps in place it's not like a done deal <laughs> but now I seem to have um like a toolkit of things I can draw upon when those moments overwhelm me and when you say I can't do this anymore was it your job was it, was it other personal factors that were getting away was yeah. it just your life generally just the whole thing Linda the whole thing so basically I was a single mum I've been a single mum for a long long time so the boys were sort of 16 and 13 so you know that time when they're so busy both mum and dad were going through chemotherapy and and I was going through the early stages of the perimenopause so all those things that we talk about sleepless nights anxiety brain fog night sweats heart palpitations my body ached just overwhelming anxiety the world is about to end and it's my fault you know so and I've always been a worrier but this was like worry on steroids so you know all those things and working and putting food on the table and trying to be everything to everybody just got to that point where when I said I can't do this anymore it was just this life. I can't do this life anymore. I mean, I wasn't at the point of doing anything no. harmful to myself. No. I just couldn't carry on living the way I was living. It's unique to me, but there's nothing unique. I think we can all relate to that. I think yeah. it's very interesting, though, how one way of escaping this was letting it out and crying. Now, a lot of women mm. don't do that. They hold it together and 
and brush it under the carpet, which it does make it worse. Sometimes it mm-hmm. doesn't, but sometimes mm-hmm. it, so for you to allow yourself and then say, well, actually, I haven't actually cried in a little year. And that might be another moment in life. Well, I will do, but I'm going to be open about it, quite frankly. And that's what happens. Yeah. So I, I get the yeah. impression that you are quite a sort of an, a broad minded and quite open about things and like to talk about things. That's such a good question, Susie, because I think I'd held it in for maybe five or six years, you know, yeah, different things. So, you know, I don't often talk about my, um, my divorce, but there was my divorce, my miscarriages, I'd never talked about those. And interestingly, that's such a good question. No one's ever asked me that question. When my mum subsequently died. So that was the May 2013. She died December 2013. In the March 2014, incredibly lucky to be offered bereavement counselling. I, I think you're, you're meant to have like six sessions. And by session five, I said to him, we haven't talked about mum. I feel really guilty. We haven't talked about mum. We've talked about every other thing that I feel sad about in my life. And he said, no, we've got to get that other grief out. You know, it's all grief. Divorce is a grief. Miscarriage is grief. You have had a lot of loss. And I often talk about how I feel like the loss had seeped into my bones. It just was all part of me, that loss and sadness. And on the surface, I was a really, you know, hi, hi, happy. So I was living life well and happy, but there was a residual sadness there. And it was like we rooted out the sadness. And then three or four weeks after that, I decided to do a big fundraising challenge for mum in her memory. And I rode a million metres and a marathon to raise money for Macmillan Cancer. And the movement, it was like he talked about this grief and then the movement allowed me to move that grief out of my bones and exhale it. It's a really weird way of saying it, but that's what it felt like. So now I am more open because I just don't want other women to feel so lonely. I remember there was a song. It was, I know it's a beautiful world, but I can't feel it right now. And that's how I felt. I knew the world was great. I knew there was wonderful things but there was a big glass jar between me and the world and I could feel none of that joy. And so now having kind of found ways to find joy, I just want to share that. All I want to do is be that person that encourages other women to find their own joy. So between that biscuit, the biscuit crisis, really, the hobnob crisis, and, and you coming out the other end, was there a particular moment? Was it the grief counselling that made the huge difference? Or was it just lots of little things? It was lots of little things, but I think I owe a lot more to the grief counselling than I, you know, on reflection. It was really hard. You know, I'm not the only single parent. I felt a huge amount of sadness for my sons. I felt sadness for both sets of grandparents. You know, I felt sadness for my miscarriages. I'm not the only woman that's had a miscarriage, you know. So there was all these sadnesses. And then there was that level of guilt about being sad about them, Mm. if that makes sense. And and feeling like I was being selfish. And so I think the the bereavement counselling played a much bigger part in hindsight than I thought it did. And then it was just little steps along the way, you know, just doing something and choosing sometimes to say no to things that I normally would go, oh yeah, I'll bake a cake. Oh yeah, I'll be on the stall at the PA. Oh, you know, I'll do that for you. You know, tiny little things where you go, can I do that? Or am I just completely stretching myself? One of the steps you took, you said a friend of yours lent you an indoor rowing machine. But this helped you with your sleep. You're talking about perimenopause as well. So this is another step that you took. And you said your life became a lot brighter. Sometimes I'll say to you, oh, you know, 
you know, we talk about you in the film and the rowing machine and she'll laugh and go, oh yeah, you know, I think she just wanted it out of her house to be really honest. <laughs> it was a really old rowing machine and it was like going to the charity shop or the tips and she, she was having a big declutter, but I thank her for it. And yeah, we just put it in, in our kitchen and I just rowed and I just remember after a couple of weeks of moving, I was sleeping and then I just carried on. I've never done this in terms of what I look like, you know, my abs. I never do it for that. I do it for what it makes me feel like and how it helps me sleep. And then after a while, it did actually break. <laughs> um, I was just the stopping off point. And uh, so then I started going to the gym. And then it was at the gym that I rode the million metres and marathon for man. The stand-up paddle boarding. Mm. When did that start? Or is that something you'd always been interested in? No, no. So that started because I'd injured my knee. I'd gone away for the weekend and I'd slipped and injured my knee. And January 2016, I'd been on crutches for a long time in a lot of pain. And then in September 2016, I set myself this challenge to spend 30 minutes each day outside, whatever the weather. So I called it rain or shine. And literally, mainly I was just walking, which is great and really fine. But I thought right, I want to do something a bit different. So I booked a paddleboarding lesson in the Lake District. And the minute I stood up, I just felt different. You know, I'd found this way of finding joy. And then I sort of piddled along for a couple of years and then... 2016 it had all gone downhill again you know life is never like a linear thing it's never one positive trajectory up and down and I stood up and, I, and for the first time in months I felt like a warrior not a warrior that's how I express it it was like I stood up and I looked out and I went wow this is great I have no idea how I'll continue doing this but I just knew that it was going to be important in my life really and you look like a warrior in the photographs when you're standing <laughs> yeah. on you look amazing actually. I always feel like that but yeah how often you. did you have a ducking though by the time but in, until you got really used to it you must have um, fallen out I, off. I, I, a few times but not masses because generally when it gets like I'm going to fall off I just go to my knees it felt really good it's such a lovely sport and my dad lives at the coast I live near a canal I live near a reservoir you know I have access to water it was just tiny escapes. Put the tea on, go off to the reservoir, make lunch for my dad and my boys, go off on the sea. Just these tiny little escapes. Let's talk yeah. about then your incredible feat here that you did in 2019. You, the first woman to do stand-up paddleboard coast to coast. Now, 162 miles. I mean, that in <laughs> itself is pretty amazing. <laughs> But on top of that, you were picking up litter mm. and raising money for charities. Just getting up on the paddleboard for me would be yes. experience. <laughs> but then collecting litter along the 162 miles. How did it feel and how going through that? What was it like? Um, it was amazing. I mean, it was a dream that I'd had almost immediately after my first lesson in 2016. But I told a few people and the response was, that sounds quite boring. It sounds logistically quite complex and also too difficult for a woman of your age. And I was only 51. And those too difficult just... for a woman of your age, really? Yeah. yeah. And I was only 51 and they were throwaway comments. You know, they weren't thought through comments. They were throwaway comments. But I didn't feel confident. And so I put the dream away. And it was only in 2019 after I'd sort of built up my confidence and in that time from 2016 to 2019 in a period of about six months five girlfriends died and only one had reached 50. We don't know what's around the corner never mind Covid just life we just don't know and my idea was if you have a dream you should at least try it. it doesn't matter if you don't complete it 
but you owe it to yourself at least to try it. And so in 2019, I thought, right, whatever anyone says, I'm going to have a go and do this. My youngest son was going off to university in the October and I needed like a dream to pull me to the future. You know, otherwise I was going to be single mom, empty nester. And yeah, so I just pulled the dream out. So what was it like doing it? Um, Amazing. Mm. I mean, how often, and I say this, we made a film about it and I say this right at the beginning. How often does a a middle-aged working mum with all the responsibilities we have get the chance to spend 11 days simply paddling, eating, sleeping, picking up litter and tweeting? Mm. How often do we have that short, you know, to-do list when nobody needs us? You know, everybody was fine. Everybody was sorted. Everybody's doing their own stuff. Nobody needed us. And I could just do that one thing. Why the picking up litter as well, Joe? I mean, just doing the trip itself would, <laughs> would have been would have been quite a feat. And I love the fact that you were picking up litter because you were, you know, yeah. you were making a difference as you went. But what, yeah. what made you think about that? Um, I've I've often looked on the beach for sea glass, and a few years ago, I started noticing that there was plastic as much as sea glass, and often a lot more. And so I started picking up litter. And so when I was paddleboarding, it was just a natural thing for me to, to pick up litter when I paddleboard. I do a two-minute beach clean each day or two-minute litter pick wherever I am. And so it was just a natural thing. And I knew that the statistics about litter, the Canal and River Trust say that there's 14 million bits of litter and plastic end up in our canals every year. And 500,000 of those pieces end up in the sea. And it comes from inland. And very often people say, well, I don't, I can't do a beach clean because I don't live near a beach. And I was trying to show that what happens inland can make a difference at the coast and also to the wildlife inland. So it just seemed a natural thing. I didn't pick up every piece of litter, but what we did is we picked up litter and then talked about it on social media and talked about the different things that we found or that I found. And it was often the same thing. So yeah, it just was. It was just a natural thing to do and to raise money for the Beach Clean Foundation. So. Yeah, that's shocking, actually, isn't it? Mm. That really is shocking. Now, along the way, you've attended many events, and I love the one about attending adventure festivals. I mean, we 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 mm. attend book festivals, but you attend adventure festivals. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is something very new, and I'm learning a lot myself. But you've met <laughs> some really interesting people. You know, it's a very different concept what you're doing in many ways how mm. have all the the people that are well known how have they um, approached you Did, uh, they are finding quite amazing what you've been doing as well um, yeah I mean I don't know massive names but I know some big names mm. um which I'm very lucky to have spoken with well, first of all I'm no threat to them <laughs> you know I'm not trying to be them <laughs> I think for a lot of younger women it's like wow I thought at 40 or 50 we had to stop doing adventures so they're quite lovely and sort of say, oh, my mum would really love you. Um, or they just think, oh, wow, you know, there's life after 40 and you, we can still do things. And I think I also come at it in two different ways is I focus on the small, you know, the everyday adventures. And so I don't say you've got to fly here, there and everywhere. My adventure was on the doorstep. It came through my hometown. I slept in my own bed some nights. It started in the middle of a housing estate. You know, it was not fly anywhere and go massive. So I'm the opposite. I'm adventure on your doorstep, local, small. So again, that's different. My message isn't mountaintop. So we made a film about it. And and, and my message is not look at me at the mountaintop. My message is let me walk with you through the valley. 
And that's very different. So there's three quite distinct differences between me and a lot of adventurers. And so I just stick to my own little message, but it's so the opposite of mountaintop victory. I'm not conquering. I'm saying, this is what worked for me. Let me help you find a way to see what works for you. And and so, yeah, I got, I got a message um, in, on Instagram from a lady and she said, I'm a nurse. I've got three children. I'm 52. And I've just started to learn to paddleboard because you make it seem like it's a feasible thing for an ordinary woman like myself to do. And that was the best compliment I've ever had. It was not, you're so inspiring. I couldn't possibly do what you do. That doesn't get us anywhere, but you make it seem feasible for a woman like me. And I was just like, wow, that's so cool. That's a great compliment really, isn't it? Honestly, that is the best thing that, you know, it is, I make it seem possible for ordinary women. And that's just like, wow. <laughs> so you do a podcast as well called yeah. the, the Joy of Sup, Sup yeah. being stand-up paddleboarding. Yes, I'm that's saying. right, Linda, yeah. T- tell, us, tell us a little bit about that. So paddleboarding's given me so many opportunities and it has changed my life. And I just felt that I needed to give back. You know, I needed to give back to the paddleboarding community. And it was in lockdown And I'd listened to a few sports podcasts where it was mountaintop, conquering, look at me, look at my ego. And I thought, hmm, we need some balance here. (laughs) And uh, we need to stop having this stuff. Uh, No, no, we don't need to stop it. We need to balance it. We need to know that there are other conversations, not stop the other ones, but just have other conversations. And so I thought, oh, what can I do? I'll start a podcast. I listened to podcasts. I found podcasts really, you know, motivating, really inspiring. So I'll start a podcast. Uh, how do you start a podcast? Oh, I have no idea how you start a podcast. And so um, I asked a few friends and they said, oh, just do it. And I went, oh, OK, I'll just do it. And so I just wanted to have a podcast about paddleboarding. And I wanted to invite all the people that had inspired me over the years just to say thank you and to share their stories. So it's all about the health, happiness, friendship, adventure and possibility of paddleboarding. And I have a wide uh, variety of people. So my first guest was a world record-breaking adventuring paddleboarder. And I thought, if I can ask her and she says yes, I can ask anyone else. And so I share stories of sup yoga, sup with a pup, sup surf, mums who used to be afraid of the water and not go in the sea with their children, who now do because of paddleboarding, body confidence activists. You know, so I just, it's just really lovely women who share their paddleboarding stories. Um, I'm the only podcast hosted by a woman about paddleboarding there are only four paddleboarding podcasts in the UK so it's not massive and there's only three that are focused on paddleboarding so it's a small market so it's very niche but it's just gone down really well because I'm just really it's just like us it's just a chat they tell me about this stuff and then we have questions specific questions they all answer there's tears there's laughter there's everything and it's just people just say wow I feel like I could paddleboard now and that's always the the goal somebody feels that they could paddleboard it's interesting because i think you could actually write a book joe on all the mottos that you've given out so (laughs) the one one i like is i really love this one i mean i love all of them but the one is we rise by lifting others and it is yeah no i copied that from someone else well that's fine but anyway you it's it's a good one and then we never to do something wild and it's never too late to make a difference yeah i think what you're saying you know it's really interesting about it's not all about the winning and going to the top mm. of the mountain or the top of the class. It's actually that journey to discover yeah. what you can do and you know, yeah. not winning the whole time, but actually 
doing something that's different and and I think you epitomize that and it's a very very healthy thing to do and I applaud you tell us about this film that you're making Jill has it has it been completed yet are you still filming yeah no it uh, we completed it at Christmas this year so that's what we're going I'm going to do today is I'm going to go to Sheffield Adventure Film Festival to see it's on the big screen so we filmed it um yeah I know it's been selected for a film festival with all these amazing like ultra marathon runners and climbers and mountaineers and oh amazing people and so we filmed it and then um again I thought you know it's a film about a middle-aged woman picking up litter on the canals of Merseyside Lancashire and Yorkshire this is not mountaintop stuff will film festival selectors see what the message is or will they be swayed because it isn't a mountaintop film about some rugged adventurer and so we decided to hold our own screenings in February and March just to test the waters and sent it out and got some great feedback from paddleboarders journalists adventurers filmmakers and we thought oh when the feedback came in we were like oh I think we're onto something (laughs) Uh, and then we had four screenings that sold out zoom screenings and now it's going in the rounds of the film festivals and it's called Brave Enough, A Journey Home to Joy. And it's basically about everything I've talked about today. So it's about the adventure itself, but it's also about the journey to the start point. And the message is that, you know, what I learned from it. And, and um, yeah, it's basically what we've discussed, but in film. Mm-hmm. And you see me on the canal doing everything. You see me on the canal picking up litter, triumphant, crying, doubtful. It's very honest. It's very raw. It's very authentic. There's bits where I'm crying and I don't even have a selfie stick. I'm like the phone is right in my face or my mascara is everywhere. So yeah, but it's, it's had some lovely, lovely feedback about it being so honest and vulnerable and relatable. To a, a younger person, I know we're talking about middle-aged adventures, but a younger persons will get to that middle age. And yeah, they, they don't believe they will, but they will. No, yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. What would you say to your younger self? I would always say to any younger person, and particularly my younger self, is to put put yourself on the priority list. I wasn't on it ever. You know, everybody else was first. My husband, my children, everybody. And I would just say, do it for you. It's very easy with social media to feel that you've got to do it for the victory, or you've got to do it to look good, or whatever. But just do it for you. Whatever it is that brings you joy, just try it. If that thing doesn't bring you joy and everybody else loves it, crack on to something else, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, you don't have to do what everybody else is doing. When I started paddleboarding in 2016, people were a bit like, oh, that's sweet. You know, a bit odd, but sweet. Now people are like, oh, wow, I want to try it. But, you know, if I waited for people to be impressed in 2016, I still would, I wouldn't have done it. I think it's probably worth saying, if, you, if you're interested in what Joe's been saying today, you can go along to joemosley.com. I'd recommend you have a look at that website. Joe, thank, thank you. you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank uh, you very really much. really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's thank been great you. fun. Really thank you. You can listen to our interviews by visiting womenmakingwaves.co.uk. Pregnancy can feel like a bit of a complex business. You're passed from your GP to the local hospital where there seems to be an endless number of appointments with various experts. It can feel like you're being processed through a machine which is dealing with hundreds of thousands of women. And of course, there's the preparation for the big event, labor, which can be more than a little daunting. 
So can this be made better? Well, our guest today is birth activist and author Beverly Lawrence Beach, who's working to make sure that it is. Thank you very much for joining us in Women Making Waves today, Beverly. That's a pleasure. Now, I'm going to be upfront with you. My experience of giving birth wasn't all that great. In fact, um, I've only had one child, and that was mainly down to the events at the end of the pregnancy. The experience you had having a child wasn't great either, I understand. But unlike me, it led you to becoming a childbirth activist. Tell us what happened. Well, I went into hospital, like so many women do, um, perfectly fit and healthy. And have to go in when you start feeling the twinges, which is far too soon. And got in there and, of course, everything stopped. So they said, oh, um, we'll just put up a drip. And I thought, well, I heard about that. So it went ahead. And of course, it was far too soon. When you have an induction, it's exceedingly painful. And the labour ended up 37 hours. Oh, and um, my son was born nine pounds, 10 ounces, which was me flat on my back with my feet in stirrups. And of course, I was traumatised and had postnatal depression. And fortunately, there was a paediatrician who came in who rushed over to me and held my hand because they'd taken David over to a resuscitator because he came out suspended by his feet, completely floppy like a, a wet fish. So I was anxious and she held my hand and said, he's perfectly all right, don't worry. And if she hadn't said that, I'm sure I would have had post-traumatic stress because I was absolutely beside myself worrying. I thought, have I gone through all of this to have a dead baby? Yeah. And then I started asking questions of how come this fit and healthy woman goes into hospital and comes out a physical and mental wreck. And it took me nine months, which is interesting time. Uh, to actually get an appointment with my consultant who hadn't seen me at all postnatally. And then, of course, by that time, I had a jolly good idea of what had happened and why. And uh, I got it out of him eventually by asking a killer question, which was, you had no justification whatsoever for inducing this labour, did you? And he was silent. And I had my answer. You obviously had done a lot of research in that nine month period. Well, yes. And I'd spoken to lots of women in the village. See, I thought I was the only woman who couldn't produce a baby without a problem. And everybody else was happy and smiling. And when I started talking to them, out came their stories. And many of them were far worse than what I'd gone through. And then I got angry. I thought, right, this cannot be allowed to damage women in this way. I need to do something about it. And then Jean Robinson, this wonderful Jean Robinson, who you ought to interview at some stage, um, wrote an article in the Times highlighting the overuse of induction of labour at that time. And I wrote to her and described what happened to me and said, can you now write another article about how you would get over it and what you do about it? And she said, go join AIMS, which was the Association for Improvements in the Maternity Services. And uh, a year later, I became chair <laughs> until 2017 when I resigned. <laughs> and, and so that organisation gives help to women to help them 
make a complaint or or get the kind of care that they want, depending on what it is they want. Was that your first child or your second child, Beverly? Because you have two. Yes, that was my first and my second. I was determined this, I was going to have a home birth. But of course, way back in the 70s, you were absolutely mad to have a home birth. And Polly Toynbee even wrote an article accusing me of being a sandal wearing, yogurt eating (laughs) hippie. Um, which was sort of par for the course at that time. So I sued or I threatened to. So I ended up anyway back in hospital. But this time I had a normal birth. And boy, did I know the difference between a normal birth and an induced birth. Mm -hmm. And it's streets apart. But even the pain relief, because I know that you were writing about pain relief in one of your articles and saying that pethidine, I was actually given pethidine as well. And it's not the best thing for the baby, really, or for the mother either, I think. At first, I was on the ceiling. You know, I don't take drugs (laughs) and I never experienced anything quite like that before. And it was wonderful for for a while. I have no idea how. But when, when the pain started again, when I came down from it, the world became a very dark and kind of horrible and frightening place actually well women have different reactions to pethidine and the other drugs that they use but in my case it didn't do anything at all for the pain it shut me up so I couldn't say anything I, I just couldn't articulate anything and of course there you are like a stranded whale flapped on your back unable to say you know this isn't right now in 1974 you challenged the medical defense union which claimed claimed that once a woman enters a hospital she agrees to any necessary procedure and they ultimately withdrew from that stance tell us about that i used to be an administrator in the ministry of defense so my administration hackles sort of went up at this statement and i thought this can't be right that, you know, you agree to this. So I wrote. And of course, I didn't get a reply. But what was interesting was they withdrew that statement from their next annual report, because it was on the inside cover of the annual reports. And indeed, some hospitals had it on the inside cover of your case notes, just to make sure everybody knew. So I challenged it. And then that's what started really the, the proceedings of writing something about women's rights and what your rights were in maternity care. Yeah, I felt, you know, that a lot of emphasis was put on the birth plan initially. But actually, when it came to it, I don't think they were all that concerned about it. I, th- I got the feeling it was a bit of a, a tick box in the end. Is that a common well, experience? Well, it certainly was initially. It was a, and they were awful initially. You know, you could tick a box to whether you wanted to wear your own nighty or <laughs> really important stuff. But then it, it has developed. But I'm still ambivalent about birth plans because I think they're invaluable if you've got a midwife with you uh, you know you're having continuity of midwifery care which is something endless reports from the 1980s have said one should have continuity of midwifery care Mm -hmm. and you know we still don't have it except a chosen few but if you can develop a relationship with a midwife she gets to know you You can talk about what it is important to you and what you do and don't want. But if you go into with your birth plan, with your tail up and all happy and and present it to midwives who are overworked, they're rushing around like headless chickens. 
they're understaffed, and some of them are quite resentful of, you know, how dare you present me with this? I'm the expert. They either don't read it or or they feel resentful. I mean, there was a study way back in the 90s showing that, in fact, women who presented birth plans often got worse care than (laughs) if they hadn't presented birth plans. Because it was seen as demanding and annoying. Yeah, exactly. And, And it was speculated that it was because the staff felt resentful. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, you know, what you were saying about very busy wards. I I was in a London hospital, actually, when I gave birth. I was in for quite a a week before I actually went into labour. My waters broke very early and therefore they kept me in. But I overheard something one evening because I was in a room next to reception and there was a frantic couple who turned up. She had started her labour and her partner was with her and I could hear he was getting really anxious and they just kind of said I'm sorry the ward is closed because it was full and and I completely get that but nobody Mm. ever warns you that that might happen that that is a possibility and the poor guy was kind of going but she's in labor now and they were going well you know you have to take her to another hospital and he's going what if she has the baby in the car on the way and, you know, they, they, to give them their due, they started phoning round and trying to get him into another hospital. But nobody warns you that that kind of thing might happen. There, there does seem to be a big disparity. And you're, you're sort of told all the nice things. You're not really told about all the things that might go wrong. No, you're not, which is one reason I wrote Am I Allowed? Tells women what the issues are and, and what they need to know about. And at least 60% of women are fit and healthy, and so are their babies. So why are they going into large centralised obstetric units, which specialise in problems? So if you haven't got a problem going in, you may well have one coming out. And yet all the women are told, oh, that's the place to be. Despite the research, which shows if you're fit and healthy, you're better off having your baby at home or in a small freestanding midwifery unit. And we are still campaigning to get more of these units and more women having babies at home and trusts that support it. The statistics on home birth are disgraceful. We know that at least 10% of women, if they were supported, would choose to have a home birth. Our statistics are just over 2%, and there are very few hospitals that get above that. But you are completely dissuaded from that idea if you moot it. Oh, absolutely, yes. And it's always the fear factor. You know, we'll wave the shroud, And what if something goes wrong? Mm -hmm. Well, in most cases, things do not go wrong. Once I spoke to a wonderful midwife called Mary Cronk, who was just fantastic. She's died now, very sadly, but there we are. And she said something like, I like attending first-time mothers at home. And I said, Mary, but surely that's much more risky and, and, and dangerous and whatever. And she said, oh, no. She said, when a first-time mother has her baby at home, if something's going to go awry, I can either do something about it, and if that doesn't work, I can take her into the hospital. And there isn't a rush. It is simply calling an ambulance and taking her in. And then either we can sort it in the hospital, or maybe she'll arrive and then she'll give birth in the hospital. But it isn't a problem, because first-time mothers give me plenty of notice if there's going to be a problem. And yet we have this image of, oh, it's terribly dangerous to have your first baby at home. And and women are told such things as, well, you know, you have double the risk 
of your baby dying. And you say, oh, really? Double the risk. What is the risk? And then you ask again. And often it's, oh, well, the risk is one in 620. So what's double the risk? You know, it's two in 620. <laughs> yeah. Are midwives and your experience behind these changes that you're trying to make to the system as a, as a whole? I think there are many midwives who are, but one of the problems that we've got is that midwives are trained and the first experiences they have are in large obstetric units and they don't get the opportunity or the support to work in freestanding midwifery units or in the community. And so it's not surprising that, you know, having spent most of their lives in the, in the obstetric unit, they get very nervous about having to go out to a home birth. On the other hand, there are all those midwives who are probably members of the Association of Radical Midwives who believe that birth is a normal physiological experience and they are there to help that woman achieve that birth. And of course, some of them practice in the community in the midwifery units but quite often if you're trying to be a midwife in a busy understaffed obstetric unit it's near impossible to support the woman as you must I had a midwife talk to me recently about her experience she'd spent some time with a woman after the birth trying to get her to latch on the baby to latch on and feed And she was criticised afterwards. You spent far too much time with that woman. (laughs) But, you know, she ended up successfully breastfeeding. And so they get this criticism. I think they get ground down and in the end think, oh, I'll just go with the flow and not make waves. Because if you make waves, stick your head over the parapet, then you're likely to get your head chopped off. Yeah, exactly. And then they're worried about their jobs. I found exactly this in the process It feels very formulaic and constrained by rules and regulations, actually. I guess it's difficult to strike that balance between imposing rules to ensure safety, which is what they do. Everything's about safety, safety, safety. I I was the same as you. I had to lie flat on my back, even though it was much more uncomfortable than than it would have been to, to have gone into other positions. But they seem to be afraid of letting midwives make decisions Absolutely. And, and, you know, midwives are promoted as, as being independent practitioners in their own right. But when they get in these obstetric units, that goes out the window. Yeah. Because if they start making decisions and, and deciding that this woman really doesn't need X, Y and Z, then they get criticised for why didn't you do so and so you should have done that. Even when there's a perfectly fit and healthy woman and baby at the end of it. It doesn't seem to be, wow, how well you've done. It's you didn't follow the protocol and and guidelines. And what really irritates me is, you know, they quote the guidelines. Well, guidelines are there to guide, not to impose. (laughs) Exactly. The Association of Radical Midwives that you mentioned, is that actually a thing or was that just a kind of... Oh, yes, it's it's a very active uh, group. I would hope that the majority of midwives are members. You know, they actively promote and support a normal physiological birth. That is interesting. Now, your book, 
Am I Allowed? <laughs> Actually, I love that title. And it sums it up because you don't think you're allowed to do anything. You are just being pushed from expert to expert. It was originally published a few years ago, but you're releasing an update now. Has lots of information changed in the past few years? Oh, yes. All sorts of uh, rules and regulations, all sorts of stuff has, has changed. I mean, when we first started, there was pubic shaving, for goodness sake. Oh, and, I know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, in some ways, childbirth is a fashion. So we do have a fashion. So at the moment, there's a fashion for uh, cesarean sections and induction. You know, inductions come back again. Induction initially was developed in order to help women whose babies went on and on and on in, in, in the pregnancy. And it was then developed as active management of labour. And the whole drive of it, it started in Ireland. They closed all the small midwifery units and they just had these huge hospitals, only about three or four of them. And so they found they had to get the women through the hospital as fast as possible. So they used induction of labour to do that. Now we've got the fashion of, oh, you've got to 40 weeks. So, you know, we'll, we'll induce you. And the reason they're choosing 40 weeks is there is a five week window when you could have a term baby, depending on your family's history and your physiology. Mm -hmm. But 40 weeks is the mean. So they focus on 40 weeks. We we'll induce you at 40 weeks, 41 weeks, whatever. And for the woman whose baby would not be due until 44 weeks or 42 weeks, they're actually delivering a premature baby. And they push the women into this by saying, oh, there's a high risk of your, you losing the baby of the baby unexplained stillbirth. Now, if you look at the statistics at 40 weeks, which is the point at which you're at least risk, Mm -hmm. The risk of an unexplained stillbirth is somewhere around one in 926. If you go to 43 weeks, it's one in 633. Who would put money on a horse to come in at one in 633? And yet women are told, oh, you've got double risk or, you know, it's a high risk of your baby being stillborn. And nobody says to them, OK, if it's a high risk, what precisely is the risk? And that's the question women need to be asking. And your book answers these questions. It goes through these questions, doesn't it? And prepares the mother for what might come. Yes, it gives her the opportunity of asking questions which will get relevant information out for her so that when they start waving the shroud or threatening, the women are in a position to say, well, I'm not sure about that. One of the early questions I learned was, to say, really, that's terribly interesting. Could I have the research paper on which you're basing that statement? And you'd be surprised how silent they became. <laughs> I can imagine. You must be the worst nightmare, actually, to be accompanying a, a mother into a labour ward. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I don't do that very often. <laughs> I mean, the whole purpose of this book is that I believe it's the woman who makes the decision. You know, we, the current fashion now is, oh, is shared decision-making. Well, there's no such thing as a shared decision-making. She makes the decision. You can have a shared discussion and you can share the research information and the statistics, but she makes the decision. 
Now, it might be she makes the decision by saying, oh, well, doctor, you know best. Fair enough. That's her decision. But she is the one who makes the decision. I know. I felt terribly unprepared. And I had gone to NCT classes. I had read these generic books that you buy on childbirth and all that kind of thing. But it really didn't prepare me for the reality. Not at all. No. And many of the classes are designed to actually get you to accept what the hospital has to offer. So you'd be told, you know, like I was told, oh, well, we, you know, we do induced labor, but nothing about what an induced labor was like in, in comparison to normal labor. They break the waters, put up a drip. And then, of course, once you've got your uh, induction, many women are yelling for an epidural and fair dues. It's very painful. And why shouldn't they yell for an epidural? But all these drugs alter the physiology of the, of the labor, and they have an effect on the baby. And the other issue is the women who find difficulty breastfeeding, nobody says to them, it's not that you're a failure at breastfeeding, it's that the system failed you because your baby is now full of drugs and it's not terribly interested in breastfeeding, it's tired and whacked out, and so are you. And how surprising you're having problems breastfeeding. Well, I wish I'd had your book when I was pregnant all these years ago. I really do, because what you're describing is me. To That's exactly what happened to me, even with the breastfeeding. I mean, one of the things that I explain. So very often women will come and they, they'll say, I, I'm, I want to book a cesarean section. And I, I you know, I, I can't book a cesarean because they're not very keen on doing it or whatever. And. And I said, well, why do you want a cesarean? And then they they describe what happened in their last labor. Mm -hmm. And very often say, oh, I'm never going to have another normal birth again. That was horrendous. And I said, well, you didn't have a normal birth. But it's getting to that that's the problem, isn't it? Because that is me. That is me. In my head, I was actually thinking... I would choose to have a cesarean section because even if yeah. it's uncomfortable and horrible for a few days, it oh, would have been... Oh, that's the, that's the first error for a few days. <laughs> even a few weeks, though, it would Six have been better weeks. than that horror. <laughs> Yeah, but at least it would have been a, a doable pain for six weeks, whereas yeah. I felt it wasn't manageable in my oh, case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But t- tell us more about your, your thoughts on cesarean section. Well, cesarean sections have become an epidemic. And recently, WHO had issued a statement, in fact, it reissued the statement that it made many years ago, which was that there is no evidence of health improvement in women and babies when cesarean sections exceed 10%. Now, our current cesarean section rate is over 25%. And in some hospitals, it's got as far as 30%. Is it because it's quicker for the medical staff as well? Or do you think that it's a last resort for the medical staff? No, it's not a last resort, but I I think it's a multiplicity of of issues. It's you're in an environment that intervenes. There are women who definitely need cesarean sections, but that would come into the up to 10% category. Very few women ask for a cesarean section with 
no previous experience of birth. You know, they, the propaganda is, oh, women too posh to push, so they want a cesarean. You know, this is tribe. And it's often because of their previous experience. So it's a, a sort of growing, rolling ball of interventions. But we know from the research, if those women have community-based continuity of midwifery care in their own homes or in these freestanding midwifery units, the cesarean section rate drops significantly. And and as the midwives get more confident, no doubt will go down even further. So where can people get a hold of your book? It's on Amazon. So because it's, it's produced from KDP, it's not automatically into bookshops at the moment. Um, but I'm hoping if enough women turn up to their bookshops and their libraries, then um, it, it soon will be. Well, I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you, Beverly Lawrence Beach. And thank you very much for joining us and filling us in. And I think we can, uh, we can hope that if any women out there who are listening are expecting, or if you know of someone who's expecting, do look for that book, Am I Allowed?, I think it'd be very interesting to read that. Thank you. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. Yet again, Susie, another two brilliant women on Women Making Waves. Uh, yeah, very much so. I think that both of them, I, you know, this is what I love about this program is that we talk to women that have a mission and they have something mm-hmm. they want to get on with and do. And sometimes they fail and sometimes they learn and they learn from it and they move on. And this seems to me the way these two women, Beverly Lawrence Beach has done it and also Joe Mosley. I think it's fantastic. It's the passion behind them that you can actually hear when you talk to them. I love uh, I love chatting to these women. So thank you very much to Joe Mosley and Beverly Lawrence Beach for joining us today. If you know of a woman you think that we'd like to chat to, please do contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at Women Making Waves Radio. You can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website, womenmakingwaves.co.uk, where you can hear all of our interviews. Thank you for joining us today. See you next time. Bye. Bye.